Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to a special episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Audio Wave Network Studios on the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Fort Foundation. Now a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Gibbons-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the East Side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, our candidate series continues. It's an election year for the city of Detroit. This year, Detroiters will elect a mayor, city council member, city clerk, and maybe vote on a revision to the city charter. We hope to talk with candidates running for various office and joint offices. And joining us today is mayoral candidate Anthony Adams. Mr. Adams earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Urban Management and Planning from the University of Cincinnati and a Juris Doctorate, a JD degree from Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C. Mr. Adams spent time as an executive assistant to Mayor Coleman A. Young, director of DWSD, Deputy Mayor Tukwami Kilpatrick, the General Legal Counsel of Detroit Public Schools, and the president of the Detroit Board of Education. He is currently a principal at Marine Adams Law Firm. Anthony Adams, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. I, I really appreciate being here today. Yeah, and we, we're excited to have you back. And you're looking sharp as always. I wish we had a camera in here. We, we will have pictures. <laughs> we will have pictures. And we will see who came dressed to impress. Okay, not me or you, huh? Well, I'm going to put this jacket on. I'm okay, be a little you bit dressier, okay? It's just warm in the office today. I know, I, it was I warm. To. I said, let me just oh, put on a t-shirt and, you know, call it a day. I worked from home today, and then I came in and recorded the episode. I mean, you know, John Witherspoon said it best. you got to coordinate and Anthony Adams got the coordination down, man. Right. Down from the socks to the tie to the inside, the in the inseam of his jacket. Right. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Detroit you. personified. Right. When this man walked around the corner. You hear me? Listen, human check in. How is this blessed day finding each of you? Donna, how you doing? I'm doing well. Good. Doing well. I had a um Great weekend. Um, spent some time riding my bike all over the place. I know. I right? followed your journey. Yes, I know. Well, on Saturday, you know, riding on the Riverwalk, and it was interesting. You know, it's the 4th of July, and I stopped by the Gateway of Freedom, and the man at the Great Gateway of Freedom was not pointing to the U.S. Okay. He was pointing to Canada. <laughs> okay. Uh-oh. Let us <laughs> so, so when you look at what freedom has meant for Detroiters, mm-hmm. um, historically freedom meant getting out of Detroit. Detroit was a gateway to a free place, yeah. which was Canada. Yes. Um, and so, you know, how do you as a black person celebrate Independence Day? Um, when <laughs> right now you have so many people who are trying to unteach history. Who have mm-hmm. decided that any teaching of black history is critical race theory and the idea that racism was embedded in the constitution is offensive and i you know do the math is three-fifths one right because if yeah. not Come on. <laughs> then it was, it was clearly written in the constitution <laughs> it was, and even before that you know it's so funny i think about frederick Douglass's famous speech yes. to uh, actually abolitionists, right, who were probably today's version of the neoliberal that we often critique. <laughs> what is the 4th of July to the Negro? Yeah. And why it's, should it even be celebrated? Right. Yeah. And so it's interesting watching people's timelines. You know, most of the my white fa- Facebook friends had wonderful um, for us, and, and, and they should. Well, I actually, I actually is, posted... 
Frederick Douglass's famous speech on why should the Negro celebrate the 4th of July. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Orlando and Chase Cantrell recorded it. Okay. How about yeah. that? And they published their recording yesterday, and I guess they're going to do that every year. So if you didn't catch it this year, catch it next year. Uh, I'm going to go online and pull it oh, up and listen there. to it's it. On there. We, we, we recorded it actually, Donna, in 2020, and Chase just reposted it okay. um, this year. But we found out that there is, you know, some widespread interest in reading that speech every 4th of July yeah. in, in real life. So, Well, it we needs to be. I mean, we need to understand the context of the formation of America. The, the fact the critical role that, that black people pay in the formation of America, with Crispus Attucks being, I think, the first person actually killed in the Revolutionary War. Mm, and we then, don't talk about that. Uh, yeah, and then with the, the advent folks. of the Constitution and three-fifths of a person and how that really shaped American theory and responsibility about black people in our country. So it's something that it surely needs to be examined. Yeah. yeah. It was in our foundational documents, right? Right. And then, you know, we had a few amendments passed, 13th, 14th, 15th, and people act like that means that we are now equal and free. And yeah, as we though, also had Dred Scott, too. We had Plessy Dred versus Scott, Ferguson. Plessy versus Ferguson I mean, after the Exactly, amendment. after the amendments were already and adopted. Absolutely. On, and, and a number of school segregation cases at the Supreme Court decided um, actually in favor of segregation. So it's interesting. I don't know. Um, I just learned the other day that Derek Bell yes. is considered the yeah, um, father of critical race theory. So, um, when I was at U of M, I studied, I took a class called Race, Racism, and the Law, which coincidentally is the name of his book. Yes. And so I've been kind of, I was awakened then as to how the law had been used across centuries. And so for me, I didn't understand it to be critical race theory. I just understood it to be a reading of U.S. Supreme Court cases over time mm-hmm. in the context of what was happening in the history of the United States at that time mm-hmm. to better understand the fact that um, we have never received actual freed freedom from the courts because the courts should have declared a certain number of things, you know. Um, so you say no more housing discrimination. Right. But then you also do not allow for any type of, um, you know, recompense mm-hmm. or reparations from right. all of the damage that was done. And we're now living in a city um, with, you know, with a history of segregation, yeah. uh, outright racism, uh, outright uh, vilification of the black population. Right. We live with that to this to this day. Right. So when, and when we say history, a lot of times people think, well, that's 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, All but we we're need talking to do about is, is last week. Okay. Well, we, yeah, we can, yeah, we can go <laughs> okay, back so to the, the early the 40s, 50s, and 60s with the white <laughs> homeowner associations and restrictive covenants. That's actually so interesting about Michigan and Detroit. Shelley versus Kramer, the seminal case on racial covenants struck now mm-hmm. was a Michigan case. And so we have a long history. Uh, sweat, uh, Asia Sweet. Uh, you know, stand your ground. Really, first case mm-hmm. where a black man defended himself against a white mob, right and, there on uh, Garland and Charlotte. Exactly. So we have a we have a we have a historic connection with racism that we need to recognize. So the and question on the floor is just, how's everybody doing? We got deep, oh, real yeah. quick. I'm sorry. Well, it was the Fourth of July. Uh, okay, but here's the news. Okay, here's go the news. for it. Go for it. Yesterday. We rode our bikes, and I I woke up at seven thirty in the morning, and I said I want to ride my bike to Belle Isle. 
And so Kevin was like, okay, what, what's the temperature going to be? And I said, oh, 90. 90. <laughs> so he said, I think we better get some water bottles. <laughs> so we went yeah. to the store and we made sure we had enough water bottles and water bottle holders on bikes to make it. And we rode to Belle Isle. We rode actually to. You were by the uh, crib. Two. Y'all should have stopped by. Uh-oh. Yeah, we really should have next time. Next but time. But we didn't go that far. And then we made it home. If you rode to Belle Isle, you were right by the house. Okay. Uh, across the street. Across the street. Had to go a little bit further. But you <laughs> know, I have not. I've not received my invitation yet Uh-oh. you have an open invitation okay i'll take you up on that okay. next time and do i have one as well of course mr all adams right. i'll ride my bike down the bell Isle. i've been riding in this heat though it's a little oppressive <laughs> yeah how are you doing sir? i'm doing great man Good. i'm 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 energized uh on the trail talking to a lot of people going to a lot of different nooks and crannies in detroit mm-hmm. really hearing people's frustration about the direction of the city so i'm i'm doing fine all right. Having a great time. And Happy to hear it. How about you, Mr. Bailey? How are you doing? <laughs> Thank you. You, know, you got to call no. him Mr. Bailey now. No, you, you can't yeah. call That's him right. Orlando. That's right. my, my name is Orlando. My friends call me O. All right. So <laughs> I'm doing well. Um, I I really, really appreciated the long weekend. I was actually supposed to have Friday off, but ended up having to do some reporting for British Detroit. So I've been writing uh, these last few days. And oh. We released a story yesterday about uh, the brown water that's happening. Yes. That's, that's still occurring in many homes in East English Village, Morningside, and Cornerstone, right. even though the city gave it all clear. I mean, we've been getting those reports. So I've been having to do some reporting, but then yesterday I was actually really able to have the day off and not read any news and sleep for most of the day and that was that was great so I'm, I'm feeling good and energized work from home today uh for most of the day and this is my first uh journey out so i'm feeling really good great That's yeah really good. i'm happy to hear that yeah all right let's get into it it's time for fresh off the press news that we are thinking about if you have pieces that you want discussed on authentically detroit you can hit us up on our socials at authentically detroit on facebook instagram and twitter or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Donna, fresh off the press. What will it take to protect Metro Detroiters from basement flooding? Mm-hmm. And this is Brian Alna Allnut reporting for Planet Detroit. He's quickly becoming one of my favorite reporters. Um, <laughs> who knew? I mean, Planet Detroit goes deep into issues and really looks at what's going on in terms of sustainability and what's going on in terms of the climate. And, you know, that's where... Um, something I'm really excited about. So he looked at the um, the issues at, from a historical perspective and said, wait a minute, this isn't the first time we've had flooding. That's and right. we keep having flooding and we keep hearing something of the same things. In fact, we keep finding after the floods that the problem is not the water system. Right. It's global climate change. It's climate change. And exactly. um, which is so insulting because shouldn't our infrastructure Reflect be designed <laughs> for a changing climate? Mm-hmm. Um, this past Winter, I guess it was winter, spring when Texas had the freezing yes. snow mm-hmm. and the power lines were frozen over. And we looked at them like, wow, these people really don't have it together. Right. And they said, well, it's not our fault. You know, we didn't have certain things in place. And others were saying, you know, you should have weatherproofed exactly. your electrical grid. And in this instance, we have... <laughs> in, in Texas. In right. Texas. Which rarely sees any snow. Okay. In, in, which rarely sees any snow. But here you have in... You know, Detroit, at least four major flood events since 2014. Right. And yet we're still hearing that it's global climate change. Like, we don't know what's coming. We keep having 500-year storms. And every, it's like, every wait Every five a minute. years, it seems like. Right. And we should have known since 2009 this is happening. 
So um, then you had this disastrous interview by Stu McCormick, who <laughs> was um, from the Great Lakes um, Water, Authority. Water Authority, who was, I guess, trying to clean up for Gliwa and say, wait a minute, you know, everything worked fine. We don't know if the fact that some pumps were working contributed to flooding. It was just really insulting. And so, um, you know, Nick Shrek is quoted pointing out certain things I think are important to point out. And saying that, um, you know, um, this is, um, you know, half true. Right. They should they should have been prepared for this. And the reality is we don't have a climate adaptation plan for the east side of Detroit. No, we don't. We or don't Detroit have period. a for this. But yes, for yeah. Detroit, we don't have certain plans for the east side that we should. That's right. And we need to have those things in place. And so what I'm looking for is the kind of leadership that does not make excuses, yes. but makes plans. What are you going to do next time? My bad. We messed up. But you know the reason why they have to blame the weather. They have to blame an act of God because if in fact the Detroit water um, Gliwa is responsible for this then that means that Gliwa is going to have to pay for repairs yes and so the first thing they do is you know the city sent out a message to everybody and says hey you know sign up and register with the city all of your repairs and you have to do that within 45 days fine print if this is not caused by sewer backup, the city yeah. is not responsible. But really what we're waiting for is for FEMA to get involved. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the act of, that's called the act of God clause, yeah. which always gives a, a, a city a, a way out. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the design of the, of the sewer system uh, mm -hmm. in Southeast Michigan, and you recognize that a great deal of sewer flow flows down from Macomb County and Oakland County. It flows right to the East side of Detroit then you would start to redesign the system uh, to begin to take sewer flow away from the city. And interestingly enough, there was a, there's a, there's an item on city council's agenda to allow for the Macomb County uh, interceptor authority to build another structure in Connor Avenue to take additional flow. And so I wonder how that's all going to play out with respect to what currently goes on uh, in the city where you're adding more sewer flow right. on the east side right. of Detroit. It, which is already a problem now. Exactly. You, you have a sitting seeing council member <laughs> in um, Councilman Benson yes. who thinks that the problem is that people should not live in areas like Cal Jeff Chalmers. Yeah. Okay. Well, how infuriating. It's, um, he said, we will not be, assume financial responsibility. We need to put this on the table. We need to examine everything. But you know what? They're not examining. So did he say move? Well, he said, maybe if you live here, maybe you should not live in these neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, this is just because you've been here. And, you know, so I don't want to get into the history of home ownership in Detroit among black people. Right. And the fact that some of these homes have been in black families for generations. Especially in Jeff Chalmers. Right. My family. Hello. Right. Four generations. Right. 615 Hard fought battles to own these homes. And now you have a councilman who's not from there making these kinds of you know, well, inappropriate statements. But what I'm not hearing from him is maybe we should not let them build more interceptors in uh, our neighborhood. Maybe that should what be I'm the conversation. What I'm not hearing from him is maybe we should not put a trucking facility right next to the Connor Creek pumping station and instead do something there that allows for the absorption of water. So what I'm not hearing is the kind of leadership that says, I as a city council person will protect you. I as the head of the Great Lakes Water Authority will take responsibility. 
accountability. I, as the mayor of Detroit, am going to make sure that we are prepared for a changing climate because we can go to FEMA. FEMA can declare an emergency, and I really do hope that happens. Eastside Community Network was blessed with a grant from the Kresge Foundation okay. to provide direct support to residents in our community. And I am so happy that we're going to be able to get there while people wait for FEMA. You need hot water while all these things are going to be figured out. I mean, and you need your basements cleaned. And so Kresge and other philanthropies that are coming in and investing in the meantime is important. But I also hope that what we're looking at is a seawall. What I also hope is what, that we're looking at the kind of systems at the pumping station that do not allow an internal electrical problem to disable <laughs> so, the system, yeah. which is what they said happened here. Well, where's, where's the backup generator? Uh, you know, even <laughs> you, you have to have backup power for any system. And when they split the public lighting authority doesn't provide power to the city facilities now. So we have to be totally dependent upon DTE. DTE goes down. Guess what? We're all in the dark. Now we have no backup power. Right. But the issue is, this is what Sue McCormick said. The, the problem was that there was an internal electrical problem, that the water somehow shorted out the internal system. And since there was still power to the building, that that nope. was not that was going to be a problem. Now, you know, you're, these, these pump pumps are dealing with water, right? So yeah. you should be having some weatherproofing and some redundancies, assuming that water might get into the electricity inside of here. And I'm not an engineer. Well, you have to understand that even in the Gliwa system, they have, uh, they have automated uh, flow meters, which detect the flow of sewage throughout the entire system. They should have immediately recognized that they were not getting the proper pumping based on the electronic equipment that, that operates those facilities. Well, right. But the, so it was out for a couple a couple hours. Then the other thing I read hmm. um, in this report is that there was nobody, um, that they did not have proper staffing because they only expected an inch and a half of rain. Now, we have been hearing about rain again all day. And people are going to say <laughs> it's going to rain for a couple days before. For 10 days. I would rather see you overstaff and <laughs> yeah. prepare for all rain of this rain than say, oh, we only expected an inch and a yeah. half. And so you hear excuse and so you got the inch and a half. You get the inch and a half in the, the first hour of the rainstorm. So you have you have weather meters that's telling you how much is raining. It's really very simple. It's it's a failure of leadership. It's a failure to look forward, and it's really a lack of concern for the residents who live on this side of town. And it's not just this side of town because there were other areas everywhere. where where there was flooding, and a lot of it is maintenance and DWSD how they pump and clear the sewage systems on a periodic basis to keep blockage out because I had a friend of mine, a doctor who owns an office up at six mile and Connor, uh, his basement flooded and right. he knew someone who came out and cleared his sewer line. And of course it was because the sewer line was blocked. It, it happened all over the city. Right. So here's what I'm going to say to the extent it was Gleewa. Then I think that, Lee needs to take responsibility. And I believe that the elected officials of Detroit need to be more concerned with holding Gleewa accountable in the same way that not my favorite person, Candace Miller, came out and said, you know what, <laughs> we are going to investigate what happened. Candace yeah. Miller did not come out and say, let's accept these excuses. I want the exact same level of concern directed to Gleewa by the, to the, to Gleewa by our elected officials instead of Telling residents maybe it's too expensive for you to live here. <laughs> well, you know yeah. what? You, 
to, to feed right into this story, my Fresh Off the Press story is this. FEMA state agencies assessing flood damages in Wayne County starting Thursday. That's Nawar Rahal reporting for the Detroit Free Press. So FEMA will be here Thursday to assess damages before they can declare a national emergency. There will be five assessment teams, and I really want to get this out to our listeners, that will canvas Wayne County to assess and validate home damage and disaster impacts against the federal eligibility criteria. They'll be looking at the total number of homes affected, whether folks are covered by insurance in areas that had concentrated flooding like a Jefferson Chalmers. This process could take days and homes will be visited. Listen, people, answer the door when somebody knocks on it, okay? <laughs> FEMA is going to be canvassing the city of Detroit. Go to the door if somebody, if you are not expecting anybody and an unexpected visitor rings your doorbell or knocks on your door, go to the door and answer it and show these officials the damage uh, that this has caused and wreaked in your house. So here's what I need um Residents to do if you haven't done it already. Document everything with pictures, take photos, videos, call DWSD and file a claim. ECN can help with that. Uh, call 313-571-2800 to get your appointment or just walk into the ECN offices every single day. There's staff on hand to help you file your claim with DWSD. Also, call your insurance companies. See if you're covered. What's interesting enough for me uh, in my reporting is that most Detroiters do not have sewage in- insurance or flood insurance right. because right. they don't live in a flood plan, right? And yeah. so compounded trauma happen is happening when they call the insurance company with high hopes and yeah. they say, no, you're not covered, right? And so with Detroit, uh, most Detroit making barely $27,000 a year. Right. There isn't, I'm sick of this word reimbursement. There is no opportunity for Detroiters to even put up upfront capital to get reimbursed if FEMA or the city decides to do anything. So we have to, we got to interrogate that and we have to hold our city officials accountable, GLEWA accountable, and encourage, call, call, write your letters so that. FEMA can just so FEMA can distribute some resources and so that we can also reallocate some of the resources that are already here. Is there a provision that prevents the American Rescue Plan funds from being used for emergency use? Can we relook at that? No, there's, there isn't anything in, in that act which says that it can't be used for that. The other point that I'll make is that my uncle called me today. He's a pastor of a 60 something year old church, my family church. Three feet of water in the basement. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. At New Rising Star Missionary Baptist Church. Oh, Three feet of water right on Mac Avenue. Called the insurance company, right? I won't even tell you how much his premium is monthly, but oh, it's a ridiculous imagine. amount. Yeah. And he's not covered. What is the message to the community development nonprofits, the faith-based institutions, and our businesses who may not be covered in this as well? Right. Right. It's a, we it's a, the heard vast that. majority of us don't get it. Right. FEMA right. provides flood insurance, and I think because FEMA, FEMA provides flood insurance, a lot of private insurers don't choose to. Right. And so here's the thing about FEMA flood insurance. If you're living in a floodplain, you're required to um, right. get flood insurance, Right. right. And you have to pay the entire premium up front, up front in January of the year. And that premium, no could one be pays bills 2, like that. So the day yeah. after Christmas, you got to pay a $2,000 <laughs> bill. Come on now. Nobody has that. But it, some people don't ever have $2,000 in hand at any given time. 
And so I think that we have to look at, you know, other ways of protecting people. The first thing, though, is we need a seawall. Mm-hmm. We need yeah. to improve need our sewer systems. Right. We need to do those things. And the city needs to quit telling residents that the problem oh, is on their property and yeah. that if they fix their property, they will no longer have flooding because there are so many people who do all they can invest in fixing the sewer systems under their homes and they still have flooding right. because the problems are systemic and not on individual homes. Well, I would say this. this because of this recent flood event, This is crisis level to many residents. I've talked to so many residents, even the residents who are experiencing the brown water in EEV and Cornerstone. This is crisis. Which is problematic. Which is so problematic. And the city is not communicating enough. Even if they are working on something, we need a level of transparency that we're not seeing. We have the potential for people to go all summer long without air, this winter without heat, growing mold in the basement. Uh, and, you know, inadequate uh, transparency from the city that can produce disparate health can outcomes. We, I mean, what? it is. Can we talk about cars? Yeah, the <laughs> cars. Can we talk about cars? All of those cars that don't have comprehensive yes. insurance. Yeah, all of this. Are, and, 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 and are no longer working are now dead to people. And, we, you know, we had a conversation last week on Authentically Detroit, talking about water in people's homes. Yes. I would love to interview somebody whose car got stranded on the freeway and had to swim to safety because I, if, 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 if there's any trauma that seems to be equal to having that trauma, the, the, the mm-hmm. water rising in your home has got to be the water rising in your car and you're on a freeway. And there's um, almost 400 cars that I know of that got stopped on the At freeway least. in that way. Yeah. And so um, those are the freeway cars that got destroyed. And, and I mean, then I, people had the $750, $500 towing bills on, in addition to trying to get their car started again. Extortionate. And if I point out that we're still in a pandemic. Yes, on top of all that. I want to say that we had 21 lives lost in the state of Michigan due to COVID in the last four days. Yeah. Wow. We're still in a pandemic. Right. We are. Ladies and gentlemen. We're in the midst of a pandemic. And um, and so th- the issues are only going to get worse for some people. Um, housing is already in short supply. You're talking about rental housing where the landlord may or may not have the resources or the will to reinvest in that home. Right. And that home may be lost to a renter. Mm-hmm. And we're not producing new family homes. There's no vision for that. So I think that we don't know the true cost of this. Um, there's been studies also mentioned in the Planet Detroit article, mm-hmm. the study at U of M that showed that flooded houses have more asthma. Oh, no doubt. And people living in those homes have more indoor air quality issues than people in other places. And so I don't know what the toll is. It's really, really soon. All I know is you can drive down almost any street in Jeff Chalmers Let's and see, see almost every single house has garbage or stuff in the basement lined which, up. For which in and of itself is a health issue. Which is why you you should be allocating additional resources to clear the area of the garbage because having mold uh, stuff out on the street, people walking on a hot day like today is not a good environment for people to be in. Mm -hmm. There's also some issues with respect to how the State Insurance Commission requires certain policies to be written, especially in an area like Jefferson Chalmers, because they could, by decree, impose certain requirements that allows people to get that level of flood insurance. If you own your home and you have a mortgage, you, you're somewhat lucky because your mortgage company will pay that premium up front. Then they, they charge you. But for a lot of people in Jeff Chalmers who own their homes, they don't have the resources to 
pay the, as you said, the $2,000 premium, which is very expensive given the fact that my homeowner's insurance, I think might be $2,500 and my, my flood insurance is like about 15 to $1,800. Right. So I'm paying about $5,400 in insurance and premiums for my you. house. And everybody is not living like the Dapper Anthony Adams no, well, either. So well, the reality is... <laughs> we, work, we work hard every day I now. know, and I, and, and I don't mean that, listen, I'm happy for you to live like you do, but what I'm trying to say is that those numbers are cost prohibitive to many people. And I, th- I think it's important for us to understand that. And I don't think FEMA will allow you to um, go through your, um, the FEMA flood insurance will not go through your mortgage company. I think that's a separate payment, but I could be mistaken. And so that's where getting private flood insurance, if you have homeowner's insurance, a lot of people don't have homeowner's insurance because they can't afford it. So I just think it's up to us to really come up with a climate adaptation plan. It is incumbent upon us to understand that since 2014, you had the big flood in 2014. You had the sewage backups and the pump failures in 2016 that damaged a lot of property in In Jeff Chalmers. In 2019, you had the rising sea levels and the Detroit River canal water flowing into the neighborhood and flooding the neighborhood. And in 2021, now this. And according to the residents that we've spoken to, this is the worst of all four events. And so not only are we having continuing problems but they're getting worse right you I, know what's what what's so palpable for me is i think about uh walking into my office at ecm um when it would be raining outside and my phone would ring all day right because residents were afraid Every time it rains, it produces this 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 trauma induced response from right. residents where they are they're fearful. fearful and worried, and it's just residents shouldn't be as afraid every time it rains. Well, that's why the government needs to step up and accept the responsibility for for what is occurring in the neighborhood. To suggest that people should move out of an area where there's been errors on the part of city officials, I think is very disingenuous, and we really need to address and correct that type of leadership and that type of thought process uh, in our city. Yeah. I think everybody has the right to feel as though their government is acting to protect them. And I think, you know, a lot of this certainly transcends the city of Detroit. Our nation has got to do a better job investing in infrastructure and water infrastructure. Our state has got to do a better job at everything it can do. And then our city has to do a better job. But where I hold city officials accountable, and I hope you're listening to me, if you are, is I need you to advocate and speak on behalf of people who live inside this city who don't have an opportunity to speak on behalf of themselves. I need you to listen. Don't hold town halls where you can tell people what the city's response is, but have listening sessions where you can better understand you and your staff better understand what people are experiencing and then respond. Um, That's where in a crisis, people are looking for the leaders to stand up and show concern. And, um, you know, I had one person on Facebook said that there's a city council person who reached out to them immediately. And this is why they had their yard sign. And I said, well, that's fascinating because this person hasn't called anybody on the east side to my knowledge at all. Are they even concerned? And so I think we need also for those city council people who are having conversations to visit and talk to people. Don't just give your opinion. Um, Well, if you come out of your house like I did that morning and you see the floodwaters uh, literally up to East Jefferson, 
And if you don't know how to navigate through flooded waters, you always know you always take the high ground, which means you have to drive on the sidewalk. You cannot drive down the middle of the street. You got to elevate your car. You got to put yourself out of harm's way. And most oh. people don't even I understand driving that. on sidewalks. You have to. Friday I mean, night. that's why the, the grass at that, uh, that apartment complex <laughs> on, on, on Dickerson, that the grass was ripped up because people who understood that. But the system has got to be fixed. There are easy fixes. And how we finance infrastructure is part of the problem because it's a system-wide issue versus an area issue. And we need to look at some different tools on how to fix that. Listen, we want to hear from you. Um, if you have a story to tell as it relates to the recent flood event, we would love to speak to you. Email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com or give us a call. We'll take your message at 313-571-2800. Anthony Adams, thank you so much for your willingness to come on and speak with us and our listening audience. Uh, we have <laughs> a series of questions. A series of questions. For you that we hope that we are able to dive deeper into your overall vision uh, right. for the city of Detroit. And so let I guess let's start there. Anthony, what is your vision for the city of Detroit? My vision is that it's got to be a city that works for everyone. And it's not a city that works for everyone now. When I ask people about how do they view the city of Detroit, what do they view the city of Detroit, they really don't have an answer because there's been no vision articulated on what this city should be. Should it be a city of homeowners? Should it be a city of renters? Should it be a city with bike trails? Should it be a city with recreation facilities? We've got to be able to fix the vision of a city that works for everybody, that provides everyone with the opportunity to grow uh, and live a fulfilled life in the city. That's sort of a, the broad vision. Now, what are the elements of that vision? Mm -hmm. First and foremost, we have to have people stabilized in their homes. We have too many people who are losing their homes because they can't afford to live in them because they're either overburdened by taxes, they're overburdened by the repair costs, and there are no programs that are available to help people who live in the city stay in their homes. We have a lot of great programs to help people move into neighborhoods, but when you talk about the people who actually been in the neighborhood, there are no programs to help them stay in their homes. And so first and foremost, we have to stabilize people in their homes. we got to provide them with the resources to fix their front porch, to fix their roofs, to put siding on their house, to paint their house, to do the things necessary in order for them to stay in a home. The best blight removal strategy we could have is to have people who are not losing their homes. And I think we lose sight of that. We also have to address the issue of, of overtaxation and overassessment. And we know from the, from the work that was done by Professor Atchahenny and her organization that we know that people in homes, especially in Jefferson Chalmers areas, are still being overassessed. We've got to correct the overassessment because of some issues which exist in the program on how they determine value. But we also have to take physical control of the process on how we manage our tax process. It is optional for a city to refer taxes to the Wayne County Treasurer. It is something that does not have to be done. The moment I'm here, I'm going to stop that practice and manage that process in-house because we don't need to be referring any more property to people, any more property taxes for people who are owner-occupied or renter-occupied for that much of the Wayne County Treasurer for foreclosure. It's exacerbated a problem of housing and affordability in the city. We've got to stop that and we've got to manage that process. We also have to really begin to address the underlying issues of crime and poverty and how it how they impact one another. If fighting crime was was the way to go, we spent more than three billion dollars over the last eight years in policing ourselves. 
We've got to change that model. We've got to spend more money in interventional strategies, whether it's gang intervention people, uh, social workers, psychologists, community advocates, people who can go out and have relationships with the community. I found it interesting that FEMA would come into an area like Jefferson Chalmers and not first knock on the door of ECN, which has relationships with people in the community. If you want people to open up the doors, you have to have trusted partners who can help you open the doors. And so if anyone is listening out there, use the trusted partners. We seem to neglect the interest of organizations that are deeply rooted and have relationships in the community. We've got to change how we do that. Good information. Um, So I want to talk about Proposal P for a minute. Yes. (laughs) Proposal P is a um, controversial, to say the least, um, you know, proposal that may or may not end up on the ballot. It's on the ballot, but maybe it's not going to matter if you vote for or against it. But I've received a lot of mail and seeing commercials that are really opposing it. What's that all about and where do you stand? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a form of voter suppression. I think uh, when you have constant spend doctors telling you that something is bad and yet they took not one opportunity to participate in the process of developing of the charter itself. And so I'm actually very offended that the administration would spend millions of dollars to spend a tale about what something is going to do when they took not one opportunity to participate in not one community forum or work with the more than 300 to 400 groups that actually talked about Proposal P and what needed to be done. The aspirational elements of it, we need to have an affordable housing policy. That's part of the vision for Detroit. We need to have an affordable water policy. That's part of the vision for Detroit. We need to have an affordable tax policy, equitable tax policy. That's a great avenue. We have an elected police commission, but they don't want to have elected fire commission. I don't really understand how you have a dichotomy of, of interest there. And so there's certain aspirational things in that document, which I fully support, but it clearly is an overreaction to the lack of transparency, uh, the lack of openness, the lack of community engagement in what has gone on over the last eight years. And people are naturally reacting to that. At the end of the day, uh, I was one who believed that it should be uh, on the ballot that people need to debate these issues. Part of the problem in our city is that we don't debate policy enough. We should be understanding whether or not we need to have an immigrant's right. Those things are very important overall to how we frame our city and whether or not we want our city to be welcoming for all all people. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the proposal P was designed, I believe, to um, empower the people, right? Yes. By reducing mayoral control over everything. And I think that you cannot have a reasonable conversation and not acknowledge that there was not a deliberate attempt to reduce mayoral control. Absolutely. Um, so (laughs) yeah. And as a a person seeking to see, how do you feel? Yeah. I mean, I obviously I have mixed emotions about that because at the end of the day, you know, the charter uh, was based on the fact that we have a strong mayor form of government and that the mayor does need certain authority to push through uh, agendas that are going to benefit the people. I think the problem is where you where you lose the check and balance here, and the loss of the check and We've balance here it. is is the absence of a council that 
really examines and debates the issues at the table. And so now something comes to the table and it just flies through, but the people trying to figure out why are we even doing this without any conversation with the people at the table, the people feel lost, which is why proposal P becomes so relevant because people now want to take the power from the council, limit the power of the mayor and to be much more involved in the actual governing itself. It's never good to enact a policy based on the, the actions of an individual. It really should be sort of a structural issue change that I think should be driven. But I'm for P. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm mm. for P to be on the ballot. And we'll see what happens with but, the voters. You know, I mean, the reality is, though, we have not really um, had an affordable housing policy for forever. We have not had a sustainability policy in the city of Detroit. There's some things that we've needed. Um, the city council did pass a water affordability plan that never got implemented. Um, and so we, we don't have neighborhood plans that really are that inclusive. And so I think you can talk about one mayor and I think you can talk about a system. And what I would say is that there are some structural reasons why city council functions as it does. Right now, you have two at-large city council people yes. and seven city council people who are responsible for a certain section of the city. And they've got to compete with six other folks to make sure that their area gets the kind of resources that it needs. And to, the, to, to some extent, that makes all of them beholden. clients and beholden to the mayor. Yeah, And, I and think so rather than dealing with that, which I think is a known flaw in city council by district. Yes, you known love flaw. having your council person who, uh, you know, reports to you and is accountable to you. In District 4, I don't know that that has delivered much in terms of, and I, I don't mean that in any kind of negative way, I just don't know that our district has more resources as a result of having a district council person than not. But that didn't get touched in the proposed charter. Instead, there were a lot of workarounds. And what I'm hearing from some people is that the workarounds made the entire um, decision-making process too cumbersome that it became it bureaucratized city government in such a way that it's dangerous and that's what i saw from the citizens research council more or less that's what i saw from the detroit free press i'm a supporter of proposal p because i think change needs to happen and structural change is part of it but i think that i'm wondering if you think that this is the most efficient way to get at what they wanted and if not and if proposal p doesn't pass are there other opportunities to amend the city charter or the city functioning that will get at these issues? Clearly there are. I mean, you, you, you struck one, which was the move to district representation, which people thought was going to be a good idea, but it actually it revealed a serious flaw and gave the mayor actually more power than he probably should have. Because when you have nine people operating, you know, at large, they have kind of vested interest in, in all decisions versus not having my district impacted by decision. There are things that need to be implemented. We need to we need to be moving towards more sustainability because that would drive how we make decisions around our infrastructure. We need to be creating much more affordability in how we use our affordable housing dollars, which is not occurring now. That needs to be a part and parcel of the plan. We need to have more green conservation technology as a part of our approach to how we manage our infrastructure in the city. By not doing these things, we're, we're setting ourselves up ultimately for failure because the, the environmental issues will continue uh, to become worse and our response will be tepid and at best we'll continue to uh, point the fingers and try to find fault and blame with other people 
versus fixing the problems themselves. Okay. So I think there are a lot of things we we have to work towards. Uh, and you have to have an administration that's prepared and is open uh, to these types of things, which I am. How do you respond to some of the critiques that Proposal P is getting in that uh, the charter should not be a body that is legislating um, this kind of change, that this should happen at the city council table? Well, I mean, that the, the, the charter provisions actually exist in state law and give people the opportunity to revisit how they've actually been governed. And so I would disagree with that because that's why it's there. You, you, you're there to have a charter commission that is responds to issues and trends and things that occur uh, at the table. And so I would, I, would, I would reject that theory because I believe that it serves as a valid check on what occurs. The problem is when you have a situation which is much more reactionary than what you would want it to be and not necessarily being a clear policy-based document, what is the vision for how we actually want to see ourselves governed? They should have been. They should have spent a lot more time talking about district representation and the flaws and fallacies of that. Um, but or adding more at large. Well, and, you know, folks. and that that's a, that that was my vision. Right. I had some thoughts, but I'll, I'll be honest. There was it wasn't clear how to get those thoughts heard. Um, <laughs> so that, well, but I, you're talking it about was, it was quite a process. It was, it was a yeah, process. It, was. it started and, off bad. Let me say that it started <laughs> off bad because it was a political dynamic because there was an attempt to control the direction of the charter by the mayor's office. And I think the people reacted to that. I think ultimately they did get themselves together. They did produce a document. It may not be the document that we would have produced, but they did at least produce something that they were able to put before the vote. Anthony Donna, I'm on record saying that if this uh, proposal makes it to the ballot, that uh, the administration will unleash an outright campaign against it. Yes. I'm on record on this show saying right. that, right? Uh, I got a call from an elder in my family today asking me about Proposal P. And I asked her, well, what do you think before I give my opinion? Right. You know, she said, Proposal P is a problem. How <laughs> and what the I want to hold that up against uh, the Detroiters uh, tendency to pass proposals that are on the ballot right and i'm hearing from an elder who's saying it's a problem how do you think this will shake out i, I think it's not going to pass yeah. i'll be honest yeah. with you i think yeah. that the um you know there's an enough momentum against it yeah. um i know that we usually pass proposals um someone asked the question i think it's jermon jordan who provided the answer i think chase Kentrell asked the question on facebook when is the last time something did not pass right and it was, was when proposal the proposal E was it the education? E was E, was e, e is evil. <laughs> <laughs> right. it's, I think that's the one where the, they were trying to give the, um, the mayor, mayor control over the schools. Exactly. And um, 2004. Yeah. Right. So whenever you have um, shifts in power that can create issues, I think that um, it's complicated. I think that people have heard it's scary. I think it's disingenuous. I just want to say this. People say, well, you know, this is a legislative process. You elect a new mayor. If you don't like the way things are, we think there's a lot of good stuff in here, but you elect a new mayor and you elect different city council people. And the same people who are saying that are endorsing all the same people who are already there. So yeah. I'm like, uh, so you are you for change or are you against change or are you just giving lip service to a concern? Because I think there's a legitimate argument that when – the foundational documents allow for abuse of power. Power will be abused well, or the concentration of power, even if you don't call it abuse. When 
the systems and the structures allow for a financialization of our city. Yes. And the, um, the, the monetization, the, the of, monetization every of every decision, then that's what you're going to have. Because, you know, the wealth and power does not trickle down. And so I think that unless you create a document that really forces change, you're not going to see anything different. Um, I don't expect the legislative body to legislate away their authority. I don't expect well, the mayor. Given, Can we they, legislate given, equity? They've given their authority away well, by not being by not being vocal and I think aggressive in questioning policy direction. Well, you can say that they've given their authority away, or they've used their authority in ways that people may in the neighborhoods may not like. I'm not going to assume that they are not acting um, independently, and this is not a choice they're making. But what I am going to assume is that. When you look at how cities are structured, when you look at the financial structure of cities and you look at the amount of debt we have and all of the priorities that have to be juggled, if you are not very intentional about equity and justice, it will not happen. Can I ask this question uh, to the both of you, especially when we talk about, you know, legislating equity and having these equity conversations, what is not translating to the voter electorate in the city of Detroit. When we look at proposal N, right, there was so there was there were so many agendas and it was it was tremendously a vocal opposition against proposal N. It passed. But not we're looking, finance. We're looking not at, finance though. We're looking at proposal P right now. And equity advocates are once again on the front line saying this is something that we need to vote for, but we are expecting it not to pass. What what are we missing in translation? When you, I'm sorry. When you when you when you're talking about these are very sophisticated concepts of equity. People want to hear something basic. That what how is it going to impact me and how is it going to change my life? If we're not in that lane, then we're not communicating effectively with the people who need to hear what we need to hear. If you're talking about you're not getting money to fix your house because of how the policy in the charter is and you need to change that, it's a much simpler message. I can fix your house if I have a policy in the charter which says that we have to have affordable houses and we have to spend our dollars in that manner. That's what we're not saying. We're not communicating in a simple enough fashion to show people the connection between what we desire and how it impacts their life. And I think we've got to do a much better job of communicating the simple things of how it impacts you, how it changes your life, how it how it can improve the quality of your life. P is a problem is is an easy slogan because people hear slogans they they can relate to that, but if we're not making that connection, it makes it much more difficult for people to even understand what we're talking about. I have a couple of thoughts. One of them is that um, without vision, the people perish, and I think that what we are communicating is anger, mistrust. And all of that, but we are not doing a great job communicating vision. And that's always true of the left to a certain extent. Yes. Progressives can be <laughs> very we can get very caught up in all of our, you know, anger. We can talk about capitalism. We can talk about these things. We can, you know, Bernie Sanders and just, you know, get our fingers and start pointing them and stuff. But the reality is that you motivate people with vision. And what we don't have is a visionary alternative. I would love to see it because what what the powers of be can do 
is they can lay out a vision. They can show you pretty pictures. And, you know, you may not even agree with everything they've done, but you like the pretty pictures. The and pictures look must, nice. What, and, and so I think there's a couple of responsibilities of people who want to change systems, right? Because really you're talking about systems change. And, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I'll give another example. And I, I don't like want to make people margin. angry. Defund the police, right? Yeah, yeah. That's not visionary. No. Because you're talking about stopping something, but you aren't saying create this and painting a picture that people who don't invest time and resources understanding the issue can can understand. We need to create clear and compelling vision for what the world will look like if we want change. Other than that, people will go with, and this is what's in the free press editorial in in, uh, in the endorsement editorial yes. of this past weekend um the devil they know the devil right they know. and so um you are not the devil they know and yeah. so bringing it back to you since you are running for mayor and right. you're saying choose me right what 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 is your compelling vision like what case are you making that people are going to look at it and say i'm in my case is that i am i am the candidate who is prepared to spend the resources to make your life better. I'm the candidate who's prepared to stop the flow of, of tax dollars or to big business and to invest those dollars in your neighborhood, in your community where you live. I'm the candidate who understands that you're tired of being flooded out in your basement and we need to spend resources in order to restructure the, the sewer system in your neighborhood. I'm the candidate who understands that the police are, are, are not friendly and that we need to have much more community policing to embrace and enhance the community. I'm the candidate who understands that the, your son or your daughter who's sitting on your porch or in your basement at home needs to have opportunities to have full education and training and job support. I'm the candidate who understands that there are other programs and services that we need to provide our residents in order so that they can be stable and safe and secure in their homes. No one else is offering the vision for how you would get there, and I have the experience and the skills necessary to make that happen because it's not a big thing that we have to do. It's really very simple things. Our focus is always on the big, the new, the wonderful. I'm saying let's focus on the little things. Let's do the basics. Let me help you fix your house. Let me help your son or daughter get a job. Let me help make sure that there's a safe pathway for your children to go to school. Those are the types of things I'm, I'm focused on because those are the things that are impacting people's lives the most. You, you've laid out things? a vision that a lot of people would find it hard to disagree with. But in the vision, what I'm hearing are policy implications, budgetary implications, implications for uh, advocacy in the state legislature. Can you get a bit more granular on, on yeah. so, how and that, this, this is, is good because place. every time people raise those issues, this is how I address them. When we're talking about money in the budget, the money is already there. It's a question of how we reallocate it. And so when you're talking about affordable dollars to make sure that people's roofs are fixed, I'm taking money away from mixed finance developments in downtown Detroit and then putting those dollars directly in the neighborhood. That doesn't require me to do anything special other than to change how the money is being spent. When I'm talking about enhancing uh, community policing, what I'm talking about is taking money away from militarization of the police department, uh, spending money on facial recognition technology, all these other technologies that they're using and allocating those dollars 
into the neighborhood so that we have funding for community advocates. It's not actually increasing the budget. It's using the budget in a much different manner than what people do. And because I've worked on this budget to understand its intricacies, I know how to get there. It's not requiring us to do anything else other than manage within our own means. And if there's something special that we need to get, then we have legislators uh, who are supposed to be representing our interests uh, in Lansing. Uh, we have relationships uh, that I have with people uh, in the state legislature that we go about getting the thing, the additional things that we need. If we use what we have, we can accomplish everything we need to do because it's not requiring you to do anything special other than to do your job and protect the people who live in the city. So, you know, one of the, the, the things about um, Mayor Duggan, like him or don't like him, he gets things done. That's the perception. You know, he wants strategic neighborhoods. He gets it done. He wants certain things to happen. He got the um, COVID-19, um, you know, response done. You know, we drove through <laughs> Cobo and we got our, I'm serious. We no, right. and, we, and we took our hat to him on the show. We got our All shots. Right. There's no yeah. problem. I'll be honest with you. I you, Nobody has talked about bike lanes worse than me. <laughs> But I was really loving those bike lanes yesterday. I was riding to Belle Isle, and I was like, you know. So he does things, right? And you may not like them, but he does them. What is your track record for getting things done? Because we all have ideas. What's your track record for accomplishing those ideals? So the first thing I would do is I would look at my track record in managing the city's budget during probably one, one of the more difficult times that the city faced in 2005. Well, we had to restructure the city's budgets and put some things in place and make some cuts and do some things that kept the city out of bankruptcy because the free press and the Detroit news were heralding the fact that there, the city was on the verge of bankruptcy. And it didn't occur in part because I understood how to manage the process, uh, how to make changes within the structure of the budget to do things necessary in order to keep uh, the city afloat. I would also point to my experience, for example, uh, in, in managing the homeless population during the Super Bowl. Uh, in most cities during the Super Bowl, the, super, the homeless population has kind of moved out of the city. But what we did was we, we brought together all the homeless organizations, advocacy, figured out who was good in what lane, and then allowed them to be in their lane to do what they did best. Bringing people together got great accolades for doing that. Uh, managing the, the crisis when the uh, school district went on strike bringing parties together, working out a deal to open up our schools so that our children uh, could get an education. There is a track record that I have of success of getting things done, which I think people tend to want to overlook because of they want to overlook it. And so I'm saying that my skill set, my ability to do things, uh, and within the rules, quite frankly, because it's easy to get things done to violate the rules, but it's very difficult, I think, situation to do things uh, within, not within the rules or do things within the rules to get things done. I think I have a track record of success in, in getting things done and accomplishing uh, a great task. So you know, what's funny is that, um, most of, <laughs> most of the, the points around Duggan getting things done in the free press editorial happened while he was mayor. So like you, you gotta, you gotta get in the seat, so to speak, right. to be able to, you know, it was, just, it, it fell short a little bit, just, well, just a you little know, bit. Well, yeah. when, when it the, just, it was. So, but I do have a, I have a follow up question about the yeah. 2005 budget. Yes, and I'm not sure you're gonna like this one, but I have to ask it. And mm -hmm. that is, um, is that when the bond, the the the, the POC, yeah, is that pension obligation certificates, the the swap credit swaps. 
there were POC obligations. There were credit swaps involved in what those is, deals. What does that mean? Tell, tell it means that, that means. what you have is is a bond that's issued, and then you have what they call our hedges against interest rates. And so in most bets, and up until that time, in 2005, 2006, interest rates had always been increasing. There had never been a drop in interest rates. And so what happened in 2008 and 2009 when the housing market crashed, interest rates collapsed. There was not what they call a reverse hedge. There was only a it was only a hedge on interest rates rising. There was not an interest rate default when interest rates fail. And so as a result, the bonds became callable uh, by the banks in Wall Street. And what the city did, from my perspective, was the wrong thing because they should have forced the issue at that point in time. Instead, what they did was they uh, they gave them access, or they made first lean on casino revenue. And we're getting into some really high finance stuff, which I don't think they should have done. They should have fought the issue at that point in time and staked their ground on the fact that the bond, the bond issuers failed to, I think, adequately protect the city in providing them with a reverse hedge against lower interest rates. So, but, but you were, did you engineer that, um, the credit swaps? I did not engineer those. That was engineered by the finance department. But I actually believe it was a good thing because when you look at what the city had to contribute on pensions, uh, it was an increasing amount, which actually was becoming unbearable. And the irony of it is the city is in the same position today. When you look at what the city has to pay on the pension cliff, it appears that the city is not going to be able to meet its obligation after having gone through bankruptcy and after having and the, the, the POCs incidentally were sustained legally. They was, they were not, knocked out in bankruptcy so there was no legal informality with respect to how those things were done all right so now but some people will say that's the proximal cause for the bankruptcy well that's what they want to say but the reality is that it isn't when you look at how the city lost revenue sharing uh, over the last uh, seven or eight mm. years prior to bankruptcy uh, where the state actually withheld revenue sharing from the city and forced the city uh, under the threat of a gun uh, to agree to a consent agreement, I would say that was the proximate cause of the city's <laughs> bankruptcy. Watson, the and so exactly, and so and so <laughs> when we talk about it, was very convenient to blame the PLCs because they wanted to blame Kilpatrick for all the ills of what occurred to the city. And the reality is that I I reject that notion because I know enough about finance to understand that that was not the cause. And we actually are working on a, a lawsuit today, uh, which will expose some of the infirmities and in how they actually restructured the debt around the bankruptcy and the water bonds, which imposed an additional billion dollars of cost on the city residents, which is one of the reasons why we can't afford to fix our infrastructure, because we don't have the money necessary to do that. So but stay tuned on that. That's the next question, right. though. Uh, financing infrastructure. How would you tackle specifically... Yes addressing Detroit's infrastructure needs as mayor. So so part of what we need to do is we need to understand that there are, there are infrastructure, different infrastructure issues in different parts of the city. And so when you look at Jefferson Chalmers, and because I've had so much experience in working on infrastructure in the city, especially in Jefferson Chalmers, whether it was working on infrastructure at the airport, city airport, or whether it was working on infrastructure uh, at Victoria Park, which was the first subdivision built mm -hmm. in the city uh, of Detroit in more than, than 50 years since the Eisenhower administration, understanding how old that is. 
And so part of how we finance bonds and sewer repair and water repair placements is we do it on a system-wide basis. But our problem is in Jefferson Chalmers. And so part of what we need to do in Jefferson Chalmers is we need to use the same tools that we use to finance infrastructure improvements in downtown Detroit. We need to use that neighborhood enterprise zone infrastructure package to take the increase in tax taxable value in that land and allow that money to be placed into repairing and up upgrading the infrastructure. And I think there are also some additional things that we would need to do relative to water runoff and making sure that when we build a new Chrysler plant, as they did, they have their own water detention basis. Or when they allowed the trucking company to expand, that they should have made them put their own water basin in. Or when they did the Stellantis, a parking lot on the river, they should have also installed the necessary water basins to keep additional flow out of the system. You're talking about a system that's more than 120 years old with limited capacity built in the day when we didn't have this level of runoff of water. And so there's some things that we can take the tools that we use downtown to help fix the infrastructure on the east side by using neighborhood and enterprise zone to do just that. Mm. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about young people. We don't often hear mayoral candidates talk about a vision for youth and youth retention um, in, in our city. Um, what, how are you connecting with young people? What's your vision for young people growing up in the city of Detroit, making Detroit a place that they feel like they don't have to escape, but stay and come home to? Well, that's been interesting because on these trails, I've met so many dynamic young people. I mean, I've met a colony of young people that are artists, the spoken word uh, group. And I've gone to their events and they've actually had a spoken word event, a town hall forum uh, at my campaign office recognize now I've got to connect with young people. A major failing in the city of Detroit in leadership is that young people have not been brought into the process. And so what we end up with are the same old, same old without developing young leadership and understanding what it takes to be in a leadership position. You got to know how to stuff envelopes. You got to know how to seal the envelopes. You got to know how to go door to door. You have to know how to talk with people. That training ground that we used to have, we don't have anymore. And so part of my vision is is incorporating a, a, a youth advocate, someone who is really devoted to to nurturing our young people and bringing them into the process. We've got to do that because we end up with people not understanding what their responsibilities are if they're lucky enough to, to run for elected office because people seem to run for whatever they want to run for without any level of experience, which I think you should have some experience in understanding how to operate the car. You don't just let people get behind the wheel of a car without any training. You have to have some training. And so we have to have a youth advocate office who does that. We also have to be much more uh, integrated with our school system, whether it's the charter schools or our public school system. How do we make sure that our young people are engaging in the process, working with our senior citizens, working uh, in, in City Hall, understanding what it takes in order to be an effective leader in this town? We've got to do much more of that. Why are we not working and centering our efforts around our young artist community in the city of Detroit? We've got so many talented young people who are spoken word, musicians, rappers. Why are we not embracing that culture as a part of the Motown sound, the new Motown sound? These are the types of things that we need to be talking about, but no one wants to talk about it because our young people are kicked to the curb and they're thought of as an afterthought in this whole process. I think that one of the things that we sometimes do is we bring young people in 
and we do give them jobs, but we don't necessarily give them voice and power. And so now you're working here, and I expect you to fit in and assimilate yourself into old folks' culture. And we have, what do people call a geriocracy or something like that in our nation, <laughs> in a way where we have too many leaders who are old and not enough leaders who are young. I believe in balance, right? Um, I think that somehow we've got to figure that thing out. But I, I have a couple questions because I think we have a revenue issue in the city of Detroit. You you said okay. the bankruptcy was revenue sharing, right? Revenue so we're sharing. not going to share revenue anymore. We've had the property tax reductions just because shrinking population, right. loss of value in the city property. And then you have this accumulation of assets in the downtown development authority. Right. Is there any way the city can tap into that. They have to attack into it, and they have to really really begin to unlock the value that's trapped in there. Part of the issue is a lack of transparency as to exactly exactly what is being financed in that in that downtown I just want some of the money, but I just I, I want the money. I feel as though it is ridiculous to keep on incentivizing downtown development and to divert taxes that could be used in neighborhoods to fix up the sewers and all of this stuff, and to capture it all downtown. So That's why question, there's, there hasn't been a comprehensive review in understanding the full impact of the Downtown Development Authority and how it's truly impacting the city of Detroit. I believe that if we were to undertake that study, we would see that there probably is too much being captured in downtown Detroit for two for too few the libraries benefits. would probably, say so. The library, the library is the library and our schools are major major but hits. They would definitely we, say we, so. I mean, right. I, I'm just saying. So, as a citizen who wants the sewers repaired, I'm saying so. Mm. As somebody who wants to see a seawall, I'm saying so. As somebody who wants to see affordable housing, do you need to do a study to know that capturing taxes and keeping them all downtown is not beneficial to neighborhoods in the city we know that it's not beneficial but we do need to understand how it impacts us the library is an easy thing to look at because we see how they're skimming money off the top and keeping our libraries closed that's easy we also can tell the impact on 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 our school systems because it's clearly documented to what that amount is but when you look at the overall taxable value of property in downtown detroit what does that really look like? How much do they really need to finance in that? Because they're doing a lot of manipulation of the numbers with respect to, to keep money in downtown right. Detroit. And we've got to eliminate the incentives, the abatements. Those things can no longer occur well, in downtown Detroit. I'm not talking Detroit. about incentives, and I'm not talking about abatements. I'm talking about tax capture through a TIF. Right. And I'm saying that the way that the Downtown Development Authority is written into law all of the increases in taxable value are captured and diverted into the downtown development authority, which can only be used on projects that are downtown. It's a structural flaw. Right. And we know that the highest property value increases have happened downtown. And therefore all of that money is being retained inside of a 7.1 square mile area. When you have a 139 square mile city and taxpayers, Detroit taxpayers are subsidizing that, whether it's subsidizing the sale of land or whether it is providing other types of subsidies through, you know, and so you have to begin to you have to begin to have I would call them teaming relationships because you've got to first deal with the issue of what state law actually allows you to do. The second issue is whether or not you do exactly what state law says you're supposed to do. I believe there 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 are ways to reduce that that benefit and that burden to free up dollars to put them in the community. I don't want to necessarily put that on the table right now, but I think there are ways that we can achieve that goal. 
Uh, it may require some changes in state law, but clearly there are certain things that should be exempted from that. Our libraries and our schools clearly don't need to well, be impacted. Well, neither, wait, do our houses, neither do our houses, though. I just want to point can out, we have a housing crisis in the city of Detroit, and people will not live here. And we talk about libraries and schools, and people are living here because they can't afford to live inside the city. And so we can build up a school system and a library system for a population that's disappeared, or we can understand that with the flood, with all of the things that have happened to COVID-19, we've got to be able to invest in affordable housing. And, and right we have now, the dollars. Well, we I have just, the dollars I, to do that. Can I just really that. quickly, before, before we go on, I just want to in, insert a note because we're, sometimes we, we, get in, we get into our conversations <laughs> and we start talking about development authorities and TIFs and all of that. Yeah. And I want to provide some clarity for our listeners. Local governments and their downtown development authorities under state law can capture a slice of property taxes for economic development projects. This process is known as tax increment okay. financing. That's the TIF that allows authorities to collect property tax revenue increases in a determined area to develop the area or finance specific projects. Taxes that may be diverted include county taxes, school taxes, community college, district taxes, and taxes taxes levied for libraries and parks. And I just wanted to answer. Right, but, may. But, but may. they may, but the, they may. the downtown right. development authority, 100% of increased taxable uh, um, value of all property within the it's area gets right. reinvested or diverted into a downtown development authority. Right. It's not like a share, not maybe 40%, 100% of the increased value. So all of the dollars that have been used to incentivize the buildup of downtown get captured by an authority that keeps those tax dollars downtown. That's the reason why we can keep on spending more and more, and we have skating rinks downtown, <laughs> but we don't have a community center on the east side of Detroit. Right. And that has a lot to do with the fact that that tax capture is there. And I know nobody really wants to talk about it, but I think it's really important for us to understand I do that talk we about are bringing it. so much more money into the city, and people keep thinking that the more money we bring in, the more it's going to trickle into the neighborhoods. And yet we are going to philanthropy and asking philanthropy to fund neighborhood development because all of that stuff downtown is being kept down there. And the other thing is the city published a report that showed that 100% of the new housing is being developed in the city. The multifamily housing, which is the only housing the That's city is right. developing exactly. right now, 100% of that new housing is being subsidized by Detroit taxpayers, either through tax incentives and or through gifts of land. Yes. And yet, and still... Only 20% of the units that are being developed are being set aside for people who are making 80% of the area median income of about $60,000, which that 80% is more than the median income of Detroiters because they're looking at the metropolitan area. And right. so really what you're talking about is middle-income Detroiters subsidizing the development of housing that will repopulate an area, increase property values, and they will never see a direct benefit. And we've got to be willing to pierce that. To me, that's the vision that the city citizens need to know. Not that you have the answers, but that you will pursue them and demand change. Well, when I, when I talk about my affordable housing policy, I mean, that's what I've talked about. I've talked about need not to use our affordable housing dollars to subsidize the types of developments that we, no, we see no longer see a benefit in. That is what's killing off uh, our, our neighborhoods because we aren't spending the dollars necessary to improve that quality of the housing in the neighborhoods. 
You've also got the issue of uh, the use of Section 8 uh, certificates and the fact that most people who get those certificates are being encouraged to move and live outside the city of Detroit. That's a policy direction that needs to be changed. People need to stay in the city of Detroit. If there are tax dollars, we need to allow them to stay and live in the city of Detroit so that the people in the city of Detroit can benefit from housing being strong with these Section 8 certificates. That's a change in direction that doesn't require anything special. It requires you to devote the dollars and the resources and the money necessary to strengthen the neighborhoods. That is my vision for Detroit. How do we strengthen our neighborhoods? We strengthen our neighborhoods by dedicating the dollars and the money to keep people in their homes, to fix their front porch, to fix their roofs, do the simple things in in our neighborhood that allow people to live in their homes. Well, the dollars have to come from somewhere. I looked at, I walked through three vacant homes today. Mm-hmm. We tried to walk through one, but it was apparently not <laughs> safe to go through them. But I walked All through right. three, three vacant homes on one block today. Brick homes, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Nice homes. One I just thought was going to be beautiful once we were able to fix it up. But, you know, each of the homes we walked through had some level of structural damage. Right. It could be a roof. It could be something on the foundation. It could be something with the siding, whatever. There was structural damage and fires were common. And so what we said is it would take at least $20,000 just to make these homes structurally sound. Right. Right. And, and so proposal in <laughs> proposal but, in my dollars said that they would they would spend fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to quote stabilize homes. But these homes that the, they they it's not quite twenty thousand. They decided they could spend seventeen thousand, right. and they reduced the amount they were going to spend on stabilizing homes. But our assessment said twenty. And this okay. is just looking at some of them, it'll be like 27, some of them will be 15. So the average is going to be $20,000 per home. What Proposal N won't do is give organizations like ECN dollars to stabilize those homes. Right. Um, but the question I have for you is what would you do and where would the money come from? I don't want to hear, I just want to hear specifically where would the money come from and how would you support People like me, because the reason people are taking their Section 8 certificates outside the city is because there's not Section 8 qualified homes inside the city. And We're not building them up. Well, we and we have to we have to build them up. And so one major area where dollars are not flowing from that are supposed to be creating affordable housing is the Michigan State Housing Development Authority. The Michigan State Housing Development Authority is, is the largest affordable housing agency in the state. And yet when you look at their lending patterns and what they do in the city of Detroit, their lending patterns are abysmal as it relates to single-family housing here in the city of Detroit. And I believe that they're not being held accountable with respect to, uh, with respect to creating affordable single-family housing and stabilized neighborhoods in the city of Detroit. For whatever reason, they simply don't lend single-family housing in the city of Detroit. I believe that they need to do that. You've also had this big push by a lot of these big banks about all these great things they're going to do in the city of Detroit. Well, if you're talking about dollars and money that banks have in the city to invest, then why are they not being held responsible to invest in neighborhoods and single-family housing and stabilizing housing here in the city of Detroit? They simply aren't doing what they should do with respect to the dollars that they have and they claim are allocated to support housing in the city of Detroit. At the end of the day, we also can use the same tools that we use to develop housing in downtown Detroit. If we're talking about neighborhood improvement zones and we, we draw the boundaries large enough to create enough revenue opportunity for ourselves so that we can actually build the types of housing and stabilize housing in the neighborhoods in the city of Detroit. 
There's nothing that says we can't use these same tools that, that they take advantage of in downtown Detroit and use those same tools in our neighborhoods. All you need to do is understand what the tax implications are for a particular zone, figure out exactly how much area of land you need to capture within that district, and then allocate those dollars and create your your TIF districts in neighborhoods to create a pot of money necessary to do what you need Which to do. They'll never, they'll never increase. Yeah. I just, I just want to in the, this conversation this way: the wealth is in downtown, right? And if downtown is able to keep its wealth, and neighborhoods are able to somehow depend on philanthropy, and banks somehow falling in love with black people, <laughs> and um, and and. <laughs> neighborhood economies working oh my then you know to me we're just spinning well maybe it's, i'm maybe i'm a little more quiet. optimistic well, I'm maybe not, i'm a little more optimistic well, than you on that well, i i think see, i think our people deserve more than optimism we deserve a plan well the reality is that we had optimism in the early 2000s we were just selling people these homes on predatory loans talking about oh you know what the value of your house is going to increase in two years and your credit is going to get better and then even though your interest rate is subject to balloon you're going to be able to take out a new mortgage and you're going to be able to afford this we keep selling poor people optimism and I want to sell solutions and I don't want those solutions to come from corporate goodwill because time and time again, corporations have proven that the priorities are profit and not people. And if they have to sometimes exploit black people, they will. Well, there are there are other vehicles and in, in, in organization entities like using community land trust in order to take possession of property and, and use those vehicles to create Anybody figure, figure that out? Anybody figure that out? No, yet? we. These are the tools. We the we, all of these tools cost money. Wherever it is, what I'm looking for is well, how are we going to? And I'm sorry, redistribute some of the income that has been generated in this city. It's not like the people who live down the block from you know this office or around the block from this office have not paid through property taxes, payroll taxes and other things into a system of government that prioritizes neighborhoods that are not theirs and that allows for wealth to accumulate in the downtown district and not in their neighborhoods. And we're looking for somebody to say that when taxes are generated for a municipality, those taxes should be spent in the municipality and not be captured for this one area in perpetuity. I agree with you. You have no argument with me on that. The question is mechanically making it happen and trying to get relief to people in the neighborhoods now who are waiting for relief, who try to unravel a system that's existed for more than 60 years is a difficult task, especially you have an embedded interest. When you have a, a billionaire who can go to Lansing and get special legislation passed, which screws the city of Detroit without any opposition from the mayor's office, that's what you end up with. And so you end up with a, a, a the, I call it the Tower of Babel, where not only is he getting tax captures, but he's also capturing the income tax from it. That should never have been allowed to happen because that is what's killing off and not allowing neighborhood development to flourish. And so I philosophically agree with you 100%. But there are two aspects of the problem. The first aspect is immediately how do we get people immediate relief? I think immediate relief can get there by recycling, recycling the dollars that we have for affordable housing. The second aspect of it is working through the process to create uh, a vehicle to un 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 release, or release the tax captures that exist and, and hold them at a level where they really should be, which is a lot less than what people are, are, are paying for now.
I want to talk about uh, the voter electorate in yes. the city of Detroit <laughs> and uh, the the predictable low voter, voter turnout that we have exactly. in the municipality and the folks that need equity legislated, the folks that are most disparately impacted by some of these issues that we are bringing up today. I don't think they look like the main voter electorate in the city. Are you, how are you getting these people yeah. out? So, yeah. so when you look at that number, and obviously we've done a lot of analysis of that number, you've got at a high point about 250,000 people that will vote uh, in an election. High point being presidential, high point being Biden, 250,000 people voted. Low point, mayor's race, 100,000 people on a good day if you're lucky and a large percentage of those people actually live on the east side of Detroit and I think I have shared with you guys my scattergrams of voter patterns in the city of Detroit which are unusually skewed towards the east side where people simply are not voting the people most impacted by the policies who should be voting are not voting and so there's a two-part battle that you have here the first part is that you got to get through the primary and which means you got to talk to traditional voters although i've spent an inordinate amount of Mm -hmm. time effort and money in communicating with non-likely voters even though my team is telling me i'm wasting my money i tell them that's crazy because the pathway to victory in this race is a non-likely voter if you got 150,000 people who don't vote if you get 50,000 of those people to vote, you've changed the dynamic of the actual uh, voting base in the city of Detroit. And so I've got to spend way more time in communicating with the issues that, that, that you guys are talking about. How can I help you stay in your home? How can I help you with your flooding? How do I help you make sure that you have the resources that you need in order to do what you need to do? I've got to spend the resources and the time, effort, energy. And this is a door to door campaign, knocking on doors. I've got to only, not only touch the likely voters, I've also had to talk to the non-likely voters knocking on their doors, which is door-to-door, old-style campaigning. The reason that Stacey Abrams was, was effective, apart from the fact that, you know, they spent millions to groom the voting base to get people out to vote. We don't have millions to spend. We've got to have a dedicated army of people who believe in the message, which is inspirational, uh, and we've also got to hit the mark with respect to what they want to hear and how this can actually change your life. If I'm giving you the pie in the sky, a routine, it's not going to, it's not going to get me there. And I know that it's got to be something real that people can hang their hat on that they know that from day one, when I take office, these are the first things I'm going to do. If I tell you, I'm going to give you grant money to fix up your home. I've got to do that. I got to make sure the resources are there and damn be, I'm going to say damn be the budget with respect to getting it done because they always find, they found a hundred million dollars to get Maddie Maroon to do the Chrysler plant. They found another 80 million dollars to get the Tony Suave. If they could find money like that in the budget, I think I could find some money in the budget to help people from day one stay in their homes. And I, I, I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate that verbal commitment. Right. I think that the first thing we need to do, and I'm going to agree with that, is on Uh-oh. change what I'm you can I'm making progress. Right now. You are making progress. Change what you can right now. I know we're not but an easy interview. No, I, I enjoyed ultimately, this. Ultimately, we have to look at the structures. Right. Because it's, it's the structures, you know, when you talk about what happened with revenue sharing, that was a structural flaw. 
Right. And you try to paper it over with credit swaps, thinking maybe we can make this work. And then when everything fell apart because of the predatory lending and the whole banking collapse, that ended up failing. Right. So I think, though, you have to go back to the structural flaw that you try to get over with something. And until we change the structures, we have those flaws. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the reality is that right now people can go to Lansing and do and say whatever they want to do and say. um, But I think it's also the responsibility of the mayor to have presence in Lansing. And such a a way and a policy agenda that is more comprehensive, that the mayor is very clearly going to fight for you. And I don't feel as though, and maybe this is me, I feel as though racism is something that is given some lip service, but it's not the structural aspects of racism in Detroit are no longer really politically um, viable to talk about. Even in this well, people are year afraid of awakening. That, people are afraid to talk about racism as it exists in the city of Detroit. And you can't be an effective mayor in the city if you don't discuss the, the issue of racism and how it impacts every decision that's being made. You can't tell me that they would have allowed a decision to be made in the city of Birmingham that would have captured all the taxes, all the property taxes, income taxes on a project that wasn't going to benefit the school children in the city of Birmingham. It simply would not have happened. And oftentimes, you know, we shy away from the issue of race, but we can't shy away from it because it is critical race theory at its best. And the only saving hope that most people are looking for is the fact that when this district uh, commission comes up with new districts throughout the state of Michigan mm-hmm. that there'll be a little more balance. We don't have balance now. We it's it's unbalanced. It's unbalanced to the right. And if we could move mm-hmm. that needle a little bit to the left, uh, we might have a chance of having a much different policy perspective in Lansing. But people aren't even paying attention to that whole aspect of government, which is profoundly impacting well, we've been, we've been what we're doing. About you guys have. Our, our, our voice is marginalized right. with the Detroit delegation in Lansing. Really well, the, do you remember the Council of Mayors? Yes. Do you remember the existence of mayoral lobbies where mayors would get together and say, this is what we want for our cities? Right. Um, you could have a delegation of Detroit mayors, I mean, black mayors in the state of Michigan or mayors, I'm sorry, of majority black cities coming together and saying, these are the issues around what we want, but it really does take a decision to look at race as a thing. And so um, I think it's important to have that commitment. Now, I do want to say that we are interviewing um, candidate Anthony Adams right. today. We have tried to reach out to um, Mayor Duggan and also to um, the candidate Tom Barrow Um to come on our show. And so if there's a listener here who wants to invite this dialogue, (laughs) we're certainly happy to have um, a compelling conversation with everybody running for this seat. You might, you might hear from one guy that one guy I'm sure you aren't going to hear from. (laughs) Well, you know what? And because the reality is we're asking these questions. It's not an easy interview. It is not easy, but we don't want it to be easy because we don't want it to seem as though we're soft peddling the issues. These are the concerns that we have real change, real structural change for a better Detroit is something that we want to see um, happening. 
And so thank you for um, being willing thank to you. debate <laughs> these complex issues. And again, um, if anybody um, believes that there are candidates we should be talking to, Orlando and I have agreed to be flexible in our schedule to try to make sure that Great. everybody gets to hear an authentic conversation and some authentic questionings of the candidates. Um, Anthony, is there anything that we should be talking about that we missed today? I think um, voter outreach and getting people to vote, I think, is very, very important. What does it take to really get people motivated to vote and getting the word out there that this is a very important election? If we've got 150,000 people who sit home, then we'll probably end up with the same result that we get in the same policy direction. I think we've got to do a much better job of that. We could have spent some time really talking about education in the city of Detroit. Mm. Um, I think it's it's important to understand kind of what's going on with the dichotomy between charter schools and Detroit public school systems. And I think there's some structural needs to need to be addressed with respect to the representation of boards on charter schools and how management companies are pimping our young young kids in the city of Detroit. Uh, I think there's some also some issues regarding transparency at the Detroit Board of Education. You really don't hear anything being talked about. There is a lot of corporate support and cheerleading for what goes on, but what is really happening to our children? What are our, what's happening with our educational achievement levels? I don't really hear and I haven't been able to talk a lot about, you know, education policy and my need to create what I call a chief education officer, someone who would advocate for all of the children here in the city of Detroit. Uh, the issue of crime we haven't even touched upon, which is critical uh, in in the future of our city. How we police ourselves, we kind of we kind of glossed over, but I think that's something that we really need to spend a lot more time in understanding, analyzing how we police ourselves, and how we can deal with the issue of crime and poverty and programs and diversion and things that we need to do in order to pull people out of the criminal justice system versus constantly putting more and more people back into the system. Well, if you make it out of the primary, can we get a verbal commitment that you'll come back and talk to us? Of course I will. Awesome. Awesome. Well, if you have topics or issues that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit, or email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Anthony Adams, thank you so much for coming on with yes. us. Thank, thank you for you. having me. Appreciate I appreciate it as always. Us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> shout outs, Donna. Time for shout out. I'll shout out to the Kresge Foundation, the Detroit yeah. office. I want to shout out Wendy Jackson, Brian Hogle, who's our normal program officer, and then Jonathan Wee, who stepped in while people were on vacation and said, I think you might have a problem. Let me see if I can get some resources to the people in your community. That is why um, foundations have Detroit offices, I would suppose, to make sure that they use their resources. And I have not found one to be more responsive than the Kresge Foundation. So thank you. Um, mm. Our community thanks you. We've already started buying things. We've hired a crew yeah. to go into people's basements. Mm. Um, I want to shout out the ECN staff who yeah. are just phenomenal. Around the clock. Um, who phenomenal. have been coming in and meeting with people. So far, we have registered 150 families at fabulous, least. That's counting um, with their water damage. We have been able to collect information about what's going on, and we know people need washers and dryers and hot mm. water tanks and furnaces mm -hmm. and furniture and clothes and food yeah. and bottled water. Yes. As much mm -hmm. as I don't like bottled water, people need bottled water here. We need to start collecting mm -hmm. it like we're in Flint. So we're going to be purchasing some of that too because people are really in jeopardy. And I just want to throw out this request. If anybody who listens has anything that you can contribute, whether mm. it's a dollar, 
mm. or a used appliance or just your manpower, please give us a call at 313-571-2800. Or you can, you know, inbox us at authenticallydetroit.com. Authentically Detroit at gmail.com. At gmail.com. I'm sorry. You know, I don't I don't usually say yeah, that yourself. one. Authentically Detroit at gmail.com. You can email us and we'll make sure that we route this. Or you can go to ECN's website at ecn-detroit.org. And um, we will make sure that any gift, any contribution is made on behalf of the people in this community who were, you know, just the most recent flood the worst Mm -hmm. for many people in their lifetimes and for others in the past few years if any contributions that you make will go directly to the people who we serve Um, the entire grant that we receive from the kresge foundation is going to the community that we serve shout out to detroiters um, who are digging their way out and trying to figure out how to get their basements and their homes cleared of mold and debris and uh, you know, all of those folks who are suffering from the flood. We know that it's crisis level, and I want to let you know that we see you and that we are constantly advocating for you. I want to shout out uh, four residents, Myrtle Thompson, Tania Green, Catherine Douglas, and Jonathan Galloway, a.k.a. JG, who were gracious enough to share their stories with us around their experience uh, uh, with the flood and while it was happening and some of the after effects. Um, Your stories are resonating with so, so many people. And I want to thank all of the residents who have entrusted Authentically Detroit and Bridge Detroit uh, to tell their stories in a meaningful way that doesn't, uh, that leaves you with your humanity still intact. So thank you for that. And I want to just pay homage to the 21 lives that were lost these past four days due to the Mm COVID-19 pandemic. Guys, if you're not vaxxed, please get vaxxed. It's so easy now to get vaxxed. Um, let's get the the vaccination rate in the city of Detroit up. Um, it's, it's, it's an it's, abysmal rate, oh, so we need to get it it's up. That's one of the lowest of any major city yeah. in America. I think D.C. is at almost 70 75%. Yeah. Detroit is at 34 35%. Yeah. And I know so. people want to protest government. Yeah. I know people are angry <laughs> yeah. and don't trust government. And really want to show the government that they don't have control over their bodies. We're still. I want to share. The reality is that you know a couple of years after the polio had been wiped out yes. uh, in white America, black people, black Detroiters are still getting polio. Yes, I'm going to share with you all some information that I got from a friend of mine who's a dentist who talked about. Uh, there was a doctor uh, at Meharry University, fine uh, HBCU that played an integral role in the development of the vaccine and the testing and all the protocols. I'm going to share that information with you. And listen, it gives you a really great insight into the, the efforts of black medical professionals to ensure that uh, the development of, the, of this vaccine uh, was done in a manner that would be respectful of the history of what black people have experienced uh, with public health in America. All right. Listen, I forgot to shout out. Thank you. I look forward to receiving that. I forgot to shout out um, Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ta-Nehisi Coates. Boss Come moves. on now. And Howard University <laughs> doing through. things. Come on now. Listen, Howard took a little bit of hit. Um, last Felicia. week with yeah. Felicia, you know, making some <laughs> statements that maybe she should have kept yeah. herself. Oh, girl, yeah. just be quiet because it, everything is not worth celebrating. You just need sometimes, to be quiet. like Claire, <laughs> let me tell you something, Melvin. Claire, <laughs> but no, listen. But then Nicole, Hannah Jones, and Tom Hansi Coates came through for the win, didn't they? Yeah. For I the was win. so 
proud. I never wanted her to teach at UNC. Yeah, the minute they did not, I knew that's tenure, what she was going to do. I was like, I she needs it. to be at an HBCU anyway. No we doubt. need to allow our scholars and our most brilliant people to go oh back gosh. to the HBCU and bring in fifteen mil with her. Fifteen mil. Come, and let's go. Trying that's to right. force your views and your values and on an institution that is designed to oppress you. Exactly. Okay. So exactly. anyway, I was really excited yeah, about that. that. Was great. that <laughs> All was right. Great. This, that wraps up this, uh, abnormally long episode of authentically Detroit, but we wanted to get to all of the issues. We thank you so much for listening and we want you to catch the wave.